0: This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 20% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code LEFT9. Now welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the Tom Hartman program, The Young Turks, The Rachel Maddow Show, comedian George Carlin, activism from the Unfuck It Up Project, and Moyers and & Company.
1: Here's my take on this whole idea that we need to be running around the world controlling other people's countries and other people's destinies because we don't like the religion or we don't like their policies or whatever. That's called empire. You know, when one country basically controls most of the rest of the world, that's called empire. And the American empire is unraveling before our very eyes. Yesterday... The Brazilian newspaper O Globo revealed that our National Security Agency's spying program extends all the way to Latin America. It's not just the G-whatever, the number of the, you know, G8, G10, G12. It's, uh, and it's not just you and me. It's Latin America. Uh, Basing their report on a set of documents provided by whistleblower Edward Snowden. Hello, he's letting the South Americans know what we're up to. Could he be headed there? Anyhow, that newspaper in Brazil showed that the NSA has recorded the telephone calls, communications, and electronic data of the citizens and officials of countries including Venezuela, Brazil, Colombia, and Mexico. Even more concerning, the NSA has focused its Latin American spying operations on those nations' gas and energy industries using a program codenamed Boundless Informant. For Venezuelans, Mexicans, and Brazilians, those revelations were shocking and angering. But, you know, they really shouldn't be surprising. Because we're an empire. And that's the problem. Like all empires, from the Romans to the Spanish to the British... To maintain an empire, you got to maintain control over other countries, especially countries that can provide essential natural resources like, oh, let's see, uh, Venezuela's oil. Sometimes the empire keeps control over countries by invading them, sometimes by economic bribery, other times by supporting covert actions against foreign governments the way Reagan did with the Contras in the 80s. Other times, like the old global report shows, the empire preserves its power by winning the information game, by spying snooping on Mexican gas executives and Brazilian bureaucrats. This is another way that our empire keeps itself on top of the global throne. This is how empires work. Constant warfare, foreign adventures, spy games. By directly and indirectly controlling much of the world, an empire can ensure a steady supply of all those natural resources And the strategic alliances that they need to stay on top. Empires, in a sense, are predators. They're actually parasites. They suck the marrow out of the bones of everyone else in order to grow and thrive. But in the end, if you look at the history of global empires, the British, the Romans, the Spanish, the Aztecs, the Greeks, eventually they fail. And they fail because they're empires, Those very things that make a country an empire have their own built-in limitations that end up bringing the empire down. Let me give you some examples. It is pretty damn expensive to keep building military bases all over the world. It's very expensive to go to war every decade or so. It's very expensive to fund the institutions that direct and manage the imperial war machine and its spy apparatus. Eventually, empires just are crushed by the weight of their own empire. Empires aren't fragile, by the way, just because they cost a lot. Another one of their weaknesses is that the very tactics that they use to keep themselves in power end up inciting other countries to rebel against them. The British learned this in their experience with us. Remember that? I mean, you don't remember that, but you read about that, right? 1773, Boston Tea Party, 1776, Declaration of Independence, and on it went. British learned about that with India. Mahatma Gandhi said, no, hell no, we won't go. We're going to spin our own cotton. We're going to make our own salt. The desire for self-determination is like a core fact of human nature. And that's why empires always, in the end, by, by their very presence, by the way that they run, invite backlash from the countries that they essentially occupy or manipulate. And for you and me, for Americans, the worst part of our imperial power posture is that maintaining empire funnels resources away from our problems here at home. I mean, look around you. Roads, bridges, water, and water treatment systems are crumbling. Our cell phone service is spotty. I just had a phone call a minute ago with with uh, Louise in my doctor's office. AT and T, bing up, oh, call failed. Guess what? Our broadband is among the slowest and most expensive in the developed world. Even our trains—they're state of the art for the 19th century. But they're a joke compared to those of Europe, Japan, South Korea, China. Why? Because we're moving more and more of our natural, national resources into empire and shredding in the process our social safety net and our education systems. Our country faces all kinds of really important problems, and none of them are going to be solved by building another military base in Japan or snooping on Mexican oil executives. We need to be taking the money and talent that we are now using to prop up our declining empire and putting that money to work rebuilding America, revitalizing our economy, rejuvenating our middle class. I mean, this history proves this. The Romans, the Spanish, the British, the Aztecs, the Incas, you name the empire, the Greeks, they grew powerful by military conquest, foreign adventurism. Eventually, they all overextended themselves, weakening their own foundations, and in the end, they all fell. Now, some fell really badly. Others, like the British, who ended their empire after World War I, made a reasonable transition from empire to nationhood. We should learn from that example and draw down our empire before it's too late, before we've collapsed into a pit we can't get out of. Let's end the empire and put America and Americans first. We built ourselves a prison
2: with invisible words. Go looking for them, it's your own fault Hard as you try, you'll never forget
3: them Live in denial or they won't protect you Crafted an empire unconsciously Out of prejudice and petty tyranny Won't pretend it's central, there's better ways to be the don't support themselves over murder and greed Won't we'll waste my breath
4: Sixty years ago today, uh, on August 19th, 1953, the democratically elected prime minister of Iran, Mohammad Mossadegh, was deposed in a coup. Well, for a long time, of course, we said, coup? We don't know anything about that. Of course, the United States government, CIA, had nothing to do with it. Well, that's interesting because President Clinton and President Obama have both acknowledged that, in fact, we did organize that coup. And finally, today... The CIA also acknowledges it. It was part of a section three in newly released uh, documents entitled "Covert Action," and they talk about this action called TPAJAX. Okay, and what did they do in that? They explain the military coup that overthrew Mossadegh and his National Front cabinet was carried out under CIA direction as an act of u.s. foreign policy the risk of leaving iran open to soviet aggression compelled the united states in planning and executing TPAJX. in other words absolutely we did the coup and it was u.s. foreign policy that brought down the democratically elected leader of iran back in nineteen fifty three gee i wonder why they can't stand us remember joe scarborough famously saying they hate us because they hate us they hate us because they hate us. Or maybe they hate us because we took down their democracy. And what happened? We imposed a Shah who basically took all the natural resources of Iran and conveniently handed it to the people that the CIA actually worked for, which is not the United States government or the US taxpayers. It's US companies that are, of course, in reality now multinational companies. Those corporations. Got the resources at much cheaper rates that the Shah was willing to agree to, because we're the ones who put him in power in the first place. And as the Iranian people were raped of their resources by a guy they did not elect, and the guy they elected was overthrown in a coup, gee, I wonder why they got upset. I wonder why they didn't like America. I wonder why they then had the unfortunate reaction of going towards the fundamentalists. And then they did the revolution and they kidnapped our hostages, and then we turned around and said, why did they do that? Now, I was, of course I'm against them uh, taking our hostages, I'm against the fundamentalist Muslim government, but that's why I wouldn't have overthrown their democracy in the first place. That's what happens when you do coups like that. But they don't give a damn about that. They just think, how am I going to get the oil for as cheap as I possibly can and give it over to ExxonMobil and all the other companies, and I only use them as an example in this case, that are just going to suck all the resources out of that country. We do this over and over again. Now, here's the really interesting part. They also explain in these documents that are now released decades later how they did the coup. Quote, using, these were the different tactics they used, using propaganda to undermine Mossadegh politically, inducing the Shah to cooperate, bribing members of parliament, organizing the security forces, and ginning up Public demonstrations Isn't that fascinating? All those times that different leaders throughout the world say, "Oh, you know what? There's just the CIA ginning out public demonstrations against me." It's the U.S. that are trying to impose their interest here in our country, we always say, oh, "You guys are crazy, man." you cuckoo for cocoa but the cia isn't bringing those people out they're not the ones doing the demonstrations They, the members of parliament they're representing other people in your country it turns out no in some instances of course not in all instances but in some instances it was the cia that did that demonstration it was the cia that bribed your member of parliament and organized that coup against you it was the cia that did all these things in the case of iran and if you think iran is alone, you obviously don't know a thing about history. Not only did we do this over and over again in the Middle East, but we also did it in Africa, and we also did it in Latin America, let alone Southeast Asia. We did this all over the world. And then we turn around when the rest of the world is livid with us, and we go, nah, they hate us because they hate us. No, they hate us because we did this for decades. They're not the crazy ones. If you're a U.S. citizen out there, and you think our government would never do that and didn't do that? You're the crazy one. And now, even the CIA acknowledges that.
3: My country, is of thee Sweet
5: land of poverty For thee I weep Land where my mother cried Land where my father Of genocide, pride of my heart. My country, of me, sweet land of industry. We'll break your back.
6: Okay, the man on the right in this picture, we're gonna put up. See the red arrow? Right. The man on the right, uh, one of the guys holding binoculars, that is President Kennedy. It's 1962. He's at Camp Lejeune in North Carolina, and he's holding binoculars because he is watching the Marine Corps practice landing operations. Uh, the other guy with the binoculars there on the left, that is Vice President Lyndon Johnson. Sitting between President Kennedy and Vice President Johnson is the King of Iran. Iran has a king, or at least Iran a king, uh, except they don't use the word king, they call him the Shah, the Shah, Mohammed Reza Pahlavi. Here he is again on that same trip uh, with President Kennedy and with uh, both of their wives, First Lady Jacqueline Kennedy and also the Empress of Iran, the Shah's wife. The government of Iran and our government used to be, to use a technical term, besties. We were really close with Iran. We were double date with the king close with Iran. Of course, now our governments could not be more at odds. We have no formal relations with Iran. We don't have an embassy there. They don't have an embassy here. But we did used to be very, very close allies. And one of the major reasons that that relationship ended was because of the Shah and the CIA. It was called Operation Ajax, August 1953. So in Iran, the Shah was the king. He was technically in power. But Iran also had a prime minister who was democratically elected. And the elected prime minister in 1953 was Mohammed Mossadegh. He was very popular. He also wanted policies that the Shah did not want. And he scared the bejesus out of the West. So much so that Operation Ajax was hatched by the CIA to overthrow that prime minister in Iran. The straw that broke the camel's back, the reason they decided he definitely had to go, was him crusading for Iran to own its own oil. The Shah had cut a deal with the British to essentially let England own all of Iran's oil, but Mossadegh said that was ridiculous. It was a terrible deal for Iran, and frankly, a majority of Iranians agreed with him. He was very, very popular among his own people, and he was very unpopular outside of Iran, especially in the West, especially, especially among leaders of the UK, who until that time quite enjoyed totally running Iran's oil operation with the blessing of their friend, the Shah. And then here comes this democratically elected guy, this populist guy, telling the king of Iran and telling the prime minister of England and telling the president of the United States that he is going to reclaim his country's oil industry because that's what he thinks is fair. And most Iranians agree with him. Danger, Will Robinson, danger. Obviously, that could not stand. And so we, the United States, specifically the CIA, hatched a plot to overthrow that prime minister. It was internally justified over here because he was giving our friends in England and our good buddy, the King of Iran, a really hard time. And we were also scared that he seemed too friendly with the communists in his country. So, in the early 1950s, we organized a coup to overthrow the democratically elected leader of Iran. We used propaganda and subterfuge to gin up and fake street protests. We pressured our buddy the Shah himself to sign a decree forcing the Prime Minister out of office. The Shah had to flee Iran for his own safety for a while once he did that. But the coup did work. And the elected Prime Minister, this populist guy, was forced out. And so our good pal, the King, was returned to the throne in Iran. And Britain's oil interests were kept safe for a little while longer. And Mossadegh spent the rest of his life under house arrest. And then... Spoiler alert, here's how that all turned out. Not all that many years later. Within a generation, the Iranian revolution, when Iranians ousted the Shah, the guy who we had artificially ensconced on his throne in Iran. Turns out people do not like having their leaders picked for them by the CIA. They don't like having their leaders picked for them by anybody, but maybe particularly by the CIA. And after years of all this being known, but not officially owned up to by the CIA, today the CIA admitted... For the first time ever, okay, yeah, we did it. We were behind that world-changing coup in Iran back in the 1950s. They released a CIA internal history, not only admitting to it, but explaining how they did it and why. And that admission is both a huge deal, and also, as I said, something everybody already knew since, oh, say, pretty much the day after the coup happened in the first place. Look at the date on this story. August 20th, 1953. The day after the CIA carried out Operation Ajax, Open charges that the U.S. was implicated in the first, first stages of the coup. This was the day after the coup. They were already saying it was us, but we've always formally denied it until today. And this is such a widely known thing that we did that there is literally an app for it.
2: Introducing
3: Operation Ajax for the iPad based on actual events of the CIA's involvement in overthrowing the Iranian government. So the CIA today
6: admits something that was already universally known, but was still officially a secret thing. And there have been a flurry of these kinds of no-duh CIA admissions lately. On Friday, the CIA admitted that Area 51 exists, that secret tract of land in Nevada where UFO conspiracists think that the CIA did all their secret experiments on aliens. On Friday, the CIA admitted, yes, Area 51 exists, but they did not admit that the alien stuff exists. Also last week, the CIA admitted that, yes, for years, they had kept a file on the linguist and left-wing philosopher and anti-war activist Noam Chomsky. They'd always denied that they had done that, but it was pretty, in, pretty much inconceivable that they wouldn't have been keeping tabs on him, given who else we know they were keeping tabs on at that time. We always knew it, but now they are admitting it. How come? When you implausibly deny stuff that everybody knows is true, it costs you some of your credibility. I mean, if we know it is so, if it is proven to be so, if it is widely reported and admitted to be so, but you just won't formally admit it, you don't seem all that trustworthy in your formal statements anymore. So so it is a good thing for the credibility of the U.S. government that the CIA is now admitting this stuff formally that everybody has already reported and figured out. It's also why it was good for the credibility of the U.S. government when we finally got an admission from the Obama administration that we are, in fact, killing people with drones outside of war zones. Instead of hearing them say for years, in the most passive way possible, that people had been killed under circumstances we could not comment on, that we all knew were drone strikes, it helped when they finally admitted, yeah, we're killing people with drone strikes. And that is why it is good now for the credibility of our government that we are finally getting this admission from the CIA about what happened in Iran. And yeah, maybe it took until today, until the 60th anniversary of the coup, but they never saw fit to admit to it before, and now they do. Credibility is priceless, and it is an important thing, a praiseworthy advance, when our government stops implausibly denying what is widely known and proven to be true. If this is the new CIA approach under Director John Brennan, then thank you, Director John Brennan. If in your life people believe you when you talk, it is a sign of credibility well-earned and in some ways of a life well-lived. Same goes for government. If you are in public service, try to leave government more credible than how you found it when you got there. Telling us what exactly the NSA does might be a nice next step, you guys.
7: Hey, Mr. President, what's the
6: deal, deal? Don't be so secretive, keep
0: Squarespace is a platform used to build professional looking websites so easily that anyone can do it. And if you already have a website up and running, then switching to Squarespace is easy with their content importer. And you can try out their service for free without even having to sign up with a credit card. And you'll probably like what you see, but you should keep in mind that they're actually constantly adding features and templates every month. So it's a service that just keeps getting better the more you use it. If you're a power user, Squarespace offers developer mode. So you can really get in under the hood and customize your heart's content and of course every user from beginner to haggard old veterans of the internet will benefit from the always ready to lend a hand 24 7 support team so go ahead and give squarespace a try and remember that for september only when you use the special offer code left nine that's l-e-f-t and the number nine you get 20 off your service and it lets them know that you're supporting this show at the same time so again the offer code is left nine to get 20 off when you create your own space at squarespace.com
5: so much fun your credibility so much fun thank you and hello new york hello new york and thank you yeah okay it's been a little while it's been a little while since i've been here and a couple of things have happened in that time i'd like to talk a little bit about the war in the persian gulf Big doings in the Persian Gulf. You know my favorite part of that war? It's the first war we ever had that was on every channel plus cable. And the war got good ratings, too, didn't it? Got good ratings. Well, we like war. We like war. We're a warlike people. We like war because we're good at it. You know why we're good at it? Because we get a lot of practice. This country's only 200 years old, and already we've had 10 major wars. We average a major war every 20 years in this country. So we're good at it. And it's a good thing we are. We're not very good at anything else anymore. Huh? Can't build a decent car. Can't make a TV set or a VCR worth the fuck. Got no steel industry left. Can't educate our young people. Can't get health care to our old people. But we can bomb the shit out of your country, all right? Especially if your country is full of brown people. Oh, we like that, don't we? That's our hobby. That's our new job in the world, bombing brown people. Iraq, Panama, Grenada, Libya, you got some brown people in your country, tell them to watch the fuck out, or we'll goddamn bomb them. Well, when's the last white people you can remember that we bombed? Can you remember the last white, can you remember any white people? we've ever bombed. The Germans, those are the only ones. And that's only because they were trying to cut in on our action. They wanted to dominate the world. Bullshit, that's our fucking job. That's our fucking job. Now we only bomb brown people. Not because they're trying to cut in on our action, just because they're brown. Now, you probably noticed, I don't feel about that war the way we were told we were supposed to feel about that war, the way we were ordered and instructed by the United States government to feel about that war. You see, I tell you, my mind doesn't work that way. I got this real moron thing I do, it's called thinking. And I'm not a very good American because I like to form my own opinions. I don't just roll over when I'm told to. Sad to say, most Americans just roll over on command, not me. I have certain rules I live by. My first rule, I don't believe anything the government tells me. Nothing. Zero. Nope. And I don't take very seriously the media or the press in this country, who in the case of the Persian Gulf War were nothing more than unpaid employees of the Department of Defense, and who most of the time, most of the time, function as kind of an unofficial public relations agency for the United States government. So I don't listen to them, I don't really believe in my country, and i got to tell you folks, I don't get all choked up about yellow ribbons and American flags. I consider them, I consider them to be symbols, and I leave symbols to the symbol-minded.
4: I know right now we're in the middle of discussions about whether we should take any actions in Syria because they use chemical weapons. Now, there is a little bit of hypocrisy here when the U.S. government talks about that because, of course, we know that our former ally, Iraq, used chemical weapons against Iran. But we just found out through some declassified documents that the CIA released and that were in the National Archives in College Park, Maryland, that foreign policy did a great story on. Oops, we knew that they were going to use chemical weapons. And apparently, implicitly signed off on it. Now, I hear all the time from commentators like Joe Scarborough that golly gee, people in the Middle East and Iran, etc. Well, they just their hatred of us is irrational. In fact, go ahead, Joe. Tell me why they hate
1: us. They hate us because they hate 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 us.
4: Interesting, by the way. We did not repeat any of those. He said all of those things over and over again in one show. They hate us cuz they hate us. Now, the CIA has acknowledged as well as two former presidents or a current president and a former president that in fact, we did overthrow the democratically elected leader of Iran in 1953, and now we find out, "Oh yeah, we also knew that our ally Iraq at the time was using chemical weapons against Iran." That nah, they hate us cuz they hate us. So, now let me give you the reality of this. Foreign policy reports that these documents show that senior U.S. officials were being regularly informed about the scale of the nerve gas attacks. They are tantamount to an official American admission of complicity in some of the most gruesome chemical weapons attacks ever launched. Now, one of the people who was involved in this program is retired Air Force Colonel Rick Francona. What does he have to say? "Quote: The Iraqis never told us that they intended to use nerve gas. They didn't have to. We already knew." Now he was the head of uh, the intelligence that gathered information on where Iraq had massed their forces. Now that becomes very relevant in the story because you have to understand something: the Iraqis in their very long war with Iran back in the 1980s. Had been using chemical weapons for years. They started back in, in 1983, 84. Certainly in 84, they had launched chemical weapons and we knew it. In 88, we get information from our aerial footage showing that Iran has found a hole in the Iraqi defenses near Basra and that they are going to take advantage of that and likely infiltrate Iraq, take Basra, and maybe decisively end the war. Now, we know that if we give information to the Iraqis, they will very likely use those chemical weapons to deflect that attack. Will we give them that information? Well, let's keep going and find out. Now, uh, again, according to foreign policy, quote, According to recently declassified CIA documents and interviews with former intelligence officials like Francona, the U.S. had firm evidence of Iraqi chemical attacks beginning in 1983. Now, here is an actual quote from the CIA documents. Quote If the Iraqis produce or acquire large new supplies of mustard agent, they almost certainly would use it against Iranian troops and towns near the border. So now, Basra, of course, is uh, in the situation that we're talking about here, where it's near the border. Iran has got their troops, they've moved them into place, and it looks like they're going to attack and be successful unless we tip off the Iraqis. Now, again, foreign policy explains. In the documents, the CIA said that Iran might not disco- discover persuasive evidence of the weapon's use, even though the agency possessed it. So that's really interesting on two fronts. They're saying, we know the Iraqis use it, we're certain of it, but the Iranians don't necessarily have enough evidence. So this is a, one of the reasons stated for letting the Iraqis keep using chemical weapons. Because they're like, even though we know they're using it, Iran might never be able to prove it and bring it back to us, so it's okay. And then here was the second reason they had for letting the Iraqis continue to use chemical weapons. Quote Also, the agency noted that the Soviet Union had previously used chemical agents in Afghanistan and suffered few repercussions. In other words, hey, the Russians did it and they got away with it. So if our proxy, in this case Iraq, used it against Iran, well, sad day. Now remember, we just told you. That they were using the chemical weapons, and we knew it since eighty-three, eighty-four. Now the Basra attack is going to happen in early nineteen eighty-eight. This goes all the way up to Ronald Reagan. Now his uh, head of the CIA clearly knows about it. It's in the documents, right? But the decision goes up to Reagan, and they explain to him, "Look, it looks like Iran. If we don't tip off the Iraqis, are going to go through this hole in the defense, and they could win the war." Now, we could do other things, but there are repercussions. Reagan writes in the notes of the memo, quote, an Iranian victory is unacceptable. Well, that would be about as clear as you can possibly imagine. Other things might be acceptable, but an Iranian victory is not acceptable. They hate us because they hate us. Guess what we did? We let the Iraqis know where the Iranian troops were. Guess what they did? They used sarin gas on them. One last quote. Officials were also warned that Iran might launch retaliatory attacks against U.S. interests in the Middle East, including terrorist strikes, if it believed the United States was complicit in Iraq's chemical warfare campaign. Well, it turns out we pretty much were. They pretty much knew. And we've had an enormous problem with Iran for decades after that, just like they thought we might. Well, we overthrew the democratically elected leader in a coup, and then we had Iraq launch sarin gas on them to make sure they did not win a devastating war that cost them untold number of lives. But they probably hate us just because they hate us. Wake up to the reality of what we've done. Look, you know, I, I'm a patriot, and I know that people get bothered by that. You know, when I talk about it, sometimes they accuse me of jingoism. I believe in the ideal of America. I believe in the idea of America. And I think that we can live up to those ideals. But oftentimes, we obviously have not. And it doesn't help the situation to bury your head in the sand and to say, anybody who admits that stuff is anti American. No, we're pro American. We're trying to get us to do better. And by the way, wouldn't it be nice if we didn't antagonize a country so much? That they attacked us for decades on end, that we pushed them from a democracy to, by the way, being run by Ayatollahs, nice job, CIA, well played, and then terrorist strikes for decades because we sanctioned Iran using Iraq gas on them. Does that seem to help American interests? Of course not. But remember this, too, and this is really important the CIA doesn't work for us, it doesn't work for the American people, it works for corporate interests a lot of the people in the CIA wind up going into that same corporate field at the top levels now, some of the people that were in those top levels especially in the decades past would go into the CIA i don't know if that revolving door functions as well in terms of you know corporate ceos now going into the cia that's more of an old school thing but certainly still cia people get jobs outside in defense contractors private contractors and in other corporate uh, fields and so in latin america we want to overthrow a country because a banana company here in the US didn't like their policies on bananas, done. We did that for a fucking banana company. Okay? And if Iran is not cooperating in handing over their oil to us, and by the way, when I say us, again, it's not us, the American people. We never get the oil. It's to contracts to so called American companies, which are in fact, of course, multinational corporations, well, then they're going to have a coup on their hands. And if they don't play ball, maybe we let our allies use Sarin gas on them. Remember that famous picture of uh, Rumsfeld and Saddam Hussein shaking hands? You know why Rumsfeld was shaking his hand? Back then in the 1980s, cuz he was selling them the weapons of mass destruction and then that they used on Iran. And then we then later when Iraq we felt crossed us said, "I can't believe you have weapons of mass destruction." I am just shocked. Shock! I'm going to have to invade you because of it. Which, by the way, at that point, we knew they had gotten rid of because we also had the intelligence on that.
8: The fundamental things apply as time goes by.
0: One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen. So if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restriction so if you can afford 10 bucks a month that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone as thanks members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails behind the scenes stories and more of my personal musings thanks so much for your support
8: your time's
1: Reports Booz Allen Hamilton has become this is a a quote, a verbatim quote, has become one of the largest and most profitable corporations in the United States, almost exclusively by serving a single client, the government of the United States. The firm's ninety-eight percent of the firm's revenue of five point eight billion last year came from the taxpayer. Now this is one of over 1100 companies that that are draining our tax dollars in the name of national security and we're not we're not even talking about the the military stuff here. This is just the secret state stuff. This is just the snooping on you stuff. And just think of this. Ellen Ratner was on just a minute ago saying the Senate just passed an agriculture bill which is going to keep the $3 million subsidy to the Republican member of the House of Representatives who said people on food stamps are, are uh, parasites, and but is going to cut $4 billion out of the SNAP program, the, the Supplemental Nutrition Program, the, the, the full, what we call food stamps. So they want to cut $4 don't we, we just don't have the money. Booz Allen Hamilton last year took $5.8 billion. Dwight Eisenhower warned us of the rise of the military-industrial complex. That speech is virtually a cliché. I'm not going to play that speech for you again. You've, you've heard it a hundred times in your life in all probability. But another speech that he gave while he was president... In fact, is the year in the title? I thought it was 58. I could be wrong. It might have been 56. But in any case, this was a this was a speech that Dwight Eisenhower gave to the, to the uh, uh, American Association of Newspaper Publishers or Editors, one or the other. And it's sometimes referred to as his Cross of Iron speech. And he says, this world of ours at war is... Well, I'll, I'll let him say it, but I just, you know, it's not the, the world's best audio, so just listen carefully because he's saying the cost is not just money. It is the loss of schools, the loss of hospitals, the loss of food that could feed the hungry. And he quantifies it. One battleship is this many barrels of wheat. One destroyer is this many. This many. Well, I shouldn't be given Ike's speech for him when he can give it himself so well. Mm, ladies and gentlemen, the president of the United States uh, back in the 1950s, Dwight D. Eisenhower,
8: Republican. A burden of arms, draining the wealth and labor of all people, a wasting of strength that defies the American system or the Soviet system or any system to achieve true abundance and happiness for the peoples of this earth. Every gun that is made, every warship launched, every rocket fired signifies, in the final sense, a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, those who are cold and are not clothed. This world in arms is not spending money alone. It is spending the sweat of its laborers, the genius of its scientists, the hopes, of his children. The cost of one modern heavy bomber is this, a modern brick school in more than 30 cities. It is two electric power plants, each serving a town of 60,000 population. It is two fine, fully equipped hospitals. It is some 50 miles of concrete pavement. We pay for a single fighter plane with a half million bushels of wheat. We pay for a single destroyer with new homes that could have housed more than 8,000 people. This is, I repeat, the best way of life to be found on the road the world has been taking. This is not a way of life at all, in any two cents. Under the cloud of threatening war, it is humanity hanging from a cross of iron.
1: Humanity hanging from a cross of iron. The cost of a single destroyer, the cost of a single bomber, Schools, food, hospitals. This was the last legitimate Republican president of the United States, legitimately elected Republican president of the United States, Dwight Eisenhower. And you know, in many ways, a prophet. But he knew. I'm you know, Eisenhower knew of what he spoke. Uh, He he. He was the guy who, along with Joe Stalin and I'm no fan of Joe Stalin, but hey the Russians really won World War II in Europe, but you know without a little help or a lot of help actually from dwight Eisenhower and the americans i don't you know I don't think either one of us would have been able to pull it off bottom line but this is the guy that he was the supreme allied commander of all of all Allied forces in in the European theater dwight Eisenhower, and then when he Decided in nineteen fifty two to run for president. There was actually some debate, you know, is he going to run as a Democrat or Republican? Because he had never professed a party loyalty. He had always been a professional military man. And he decided to run as a Republican. And he won and he he, he ran and he won, legitimately. And his campaign slogan was vote for Eisenhower, vote for peace. You got that? Here it is.
8: This is he has met your of- Europe leaders has got them working with us. Elect the number one man for the number one job of our time. November 4th, vote for peace. Vote for Eisenhower. A paid film. That was
1: 1952, running for his first term. And then the speech you just heard was from either 56 or 50, I'm pretty sure 58, you know, long into that term, years and years into that term. And he was still saying the same thing. A world at war is a world that's insane. A world at war is a world that is that is that is refusing to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to to house the homeless. To to give warmth to those who are cold was the exact phrase that as I recall that Eisenhower used in his Cross of Iron speech. Boy, we could use more statesmen We'll be right back.
0: Today's activism segment comes to you as always in partnership with the Unfuck It Up Project, where creator Kitty Goodman and activist director Katie Klebusic highlight individuals and organizations working to change the world. Today's campaign, Veterans for Peace. If the phase of American intervention around the world is our active duty military, perhaps the most appropriate way to change how other countries and cultures perceive us is through our anti-war veterans. Veterans for Peace was founded in 1985 by 10 U.S. veterans alarmed at the global nuclear arms race. Today, there are 120 chapters across the country. Members have led or participated in more than 50 peace delegations and sponsored humanitarian efforts, such as the Iraq Water Project and the Children of War Rescue Project in Bosnia. They supported and planned Marches against the invasion and occupation of Iraq and Afghanistan. Most recently, they helped lead the opposition to intervention in Syria. Veteransforpeace.org is a fantastic resource for getting involved in the promotion of peace. You can share their Cost of U.S. Wars counter currently at $1.47 trillion since 2001, sign up for action alerts, become a supporting member, share your personal story of serving in the military, and contact your legislators. In addition to their work overseas, Veterans for Peace is committed to mobilizing its members and communities at home with a focused action calendar. Over the next few weeks, they have two actions highlighted, the Midwest Action Against Drones protest in Chicago on September 28th and 29th, and the annual Stand Against War assembly in New York on October 7th to mark the 12th anniversary of the invasion of Afghanistan. Visit veteransforpeace.org for more information on these and other actions, sign up for their newsletter, and become part of the movement to change the perception of America around the world. Give those beyond our borders a reason to suspend judgment and remember that the elected officials who would make us the world's police, judge, and jury do not speak for the whole of our citizenry. And then keep in mind that we should extend the same courtesy to those who live in countries often demonized by our political elites and corporate media. It is up to us to end the cycle of war by both showing our humanity, and compassion and seeking it out in others. Links for today's campaign will be in the show notes and all the usual places. Visit the Best of the Left Facebook page for updates on this and other activism opportunities. Also, remember that we encourage you to use your phone or other mobile device to record audio of your experience at any political event you attend to send in to be used on the show. You
3: probably didn't fuck it up But they, whoever they are they fucked it up it's fucked up.
2: Could you help unfuck it up? And then say, Are you really so fucking busy? You can't take one fucking man's help unfuck fuck it up. Cause I'm willing to pick one thing to help unfuck it
3: up. Won't you join me?
0: Bill O'Reilly is very fired up about potential conflict with Syria. He thinks it's a great idea, and the reason that he thinks that is because he has so much faith in the humanitarian power and history of the United States as a force of good in the world to combat evil. Uh, We've got a couple of awesome clips from O'Reilly. Let's roll the first. This is about how noble the U.S. is and how able they are to combat evil.
9: One of my major themes has been the basic nobility of this country. That separates me from some on the left who think the USA is an exploitative place where the fix is in against the poor and working classes. Since World War II, the USA has literally freed hundreds of millions of people worldwide. We have righted many wrongs at great expense in our blood and treasure. That, of course, is noble. But now many Americans do not want to make that sacrifice any longer. Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, those theaters of war have hurt this country. Thousands of brave men and women were killed or maimed. Our treasury depleted. Thus, some Americans have had enough. They are now willing to let evil go unchallenged because there is a never-ending supply of it. But I say that we Americans still have a responsibility to stop mass murder when we can. If we don't, if we don't, we will slowly lose the nobility that was gained by past sacrifice. Unfortunately, in this world, justice can be imposed by one people only. (laughs)
4: <laughs> all right, Jimmy Doerr,
7: let him out. You know, I just, it's funny that he says, you know, uh, we're the only ones who can, again, what I've been saying, it's just the same thing I've been saying. You know, we're also war criminals. He ignores, yes, we do good things. We also do horrible things. He just ignores all of that. And he goes, well, because of Vietnam, Afghanistan, and Iraq, what the, three, three. Two completely illegal wars, Vietnam started on a lie, Gulf of Talk, the and then also we all know about Iraq. So the, like, he just flushed those up? We killed a million people in Iraq. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the nobility, we might lose it now if we don't keep <laughs> killing some motherfuckers. It doesn't make any sense. It's funny. So,
4: to me, the great irony of that statement is, it's like, well, the American people are tired because of the terrible wars of Vietnam, Iraq, etc. But those are the wars you guys pushed us into. Yes. And now you're pushing us into another war, so maybe we're right in being tired. Right, and so now Vietnam conservatives were generally in favor of. My guess is Bill O'Reilly would have been in favor of it. Obviously, he didn't have a show at the time. uh... iraq
0: serving in Vietnam, I would imagine.
4: Oh yes, yes, of course, as they all were, like Sean Dick Hannity's Cheney before. and 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 uh, and Newt Gingrich and all of them, and Tom Delay. They got all the deferments. Okay, now uh, on Iraq, he had a show. We watched that show. We and we showed you the clips. He was massively in favor of it. So why doesn't he then do the manly thing of saying? Well, I'm sorry about my position on Iraq. I'm the one that caused you to get burnt out on these wars. I'm part of the guys that got our guys killed and our treasure wasted so obviously i've lost all credibility but i'm asking you to trust me one more time then at least that would be an honest argument right and look it's not to say that the u.s. doesn't have nobility now why do you think my parents and i came here right i was an eight year old i didn't have much of a vote but but i but i love america and when i came here i grew grew to love it etc as i learned more and more about it and my dad loved it and why because we did have nobility world war II was a good thing the united nations was set up by us now the right wing hates it right? uh... that was a great thing the uh, marshall plan was a fantastic thing, and what did it do it gave human humanitarian and economic aid to countries that were our deepest enemies okay all the things that the right wing despised all the nobility that we gained all the positive things we did was despite conservatives not because of conservatives so this conservative coming around and saying hey look at all the things that we were so noble because of all the things i opposed and discount all the things that I was in favor of that lost us that nobility and trust me one more time I'm sorry Bill O'Reilly but I'm gonna have to vote no on that but so
7: he's doing the same thing that Howard Zinn says that they do all the time when Howard Zinn says you know the worst thing that ever happened was World War II because it made all the other wars possible because that was the one good war that was the moral war we had to fight that and so now we're fighting the rest of them because of World War II and that's exactly what Bill O'Reilly's doing there he's like guilting us
10: yeah and I wonder you know I love first of all he's Freaking good! Yeah, everybody wants. That's so well written. I mean, it's mm. exactly you fear that, and you're like, yeah, let's go save those people. Yes. Like, I mean, it's like a speech in a movie, yeah. right?
0: Mm-hmm. I would really fast argue it might have been well written. I don't think anyone could have delivered that worse than he did. It was really? a combination of. I'm so clearly right, with a weird level of apathy and exhaustion. Yeah, he's, he's a little. I
4: didn't feel that he bought any of that, and I certainly don't think well, that he wrote most of that.
10: I don't know; it's his no, style. He does write it. The, the, he, he writes
4: just, the talking points, my mind. The, the, Okay, that's fine. I've read a very. He was reading that, it like he didn't like it. I read a book from the mole, or I read excerpts from that book, uh, who was no fan of Bill O'Reilly. Who said he did not only he doesn't write it; it's, it's actually a little amazing to be fair to him, right? He ta- calls it in for, on his limo ride in from his house. To Fox News studios, and he recites it. That makes they sense. They write it down and put some, it in the transcript. Sometimes there's
10: an occasional tense issue. There's a, which sounds like a guy talking it through. But like he he's flipping. He talks about this the same way he talks about you know domestic cases of violence and he's a little pants his, being his tone is a little long. flippant and he only he, right he has only one tone yeah. and, and but it's still i think it's effective it does make you feel instantly like yeah let's go do the right thing come on boys at the end of a movie i'm curious and i'm sure he stat he fact checked it the hundreds of millions of, hundreds of people of who we've pulled from is. the bonds of poverty yeah, and despair yeah, uh-huh. how many of those since august of 1945 right or right. since the Marshall Plan stopped being effective let's them until 1948 I'll throw that in there but how many of those people since the end of World War two and is he factoring in Chile and the Dominican Republic and Iran like all the places where we took it and brought in a giant dictator that we then propped and Zaire, up is that, right, and Zaire, the year right I that is that right is it just I'm just naming those three does he take those out on the other side I think we know the answer to that but yeah. but totally interesting I mean I like you get why, like that guy. If I live in a world where what you say doesn't matter, but how you say it means everything, and whether you're getting an audience, I'd see that thing and I'd go with that guy on TV. People will watch it
4: So I'm I'm in between you guys. I thought I think it certainly rallies his audience, uh, but it, yes, and it reminds me of a movie. But what Royce is doing is he fancies himself Patton in the movie, mm-hmm. and so he's mm-hmm. giving like a. A weaker, a funnier version. Like he doesn't realize it's funny, but like, like it's almost like a parody of patented because he's that's how he sees himself. And he's going, "All right now, boys, smoke him
11: if you got him, okay?
4: We're the good guys, and we're gonna give him nobility and stuff." Except he just spoke it over the phone and like on the limo on the limo ride right in. Right? Okay. And by the way, the mole said one other thing on the fact-checking point that you guys brought up. He would not allow anybody to fact-check him. If they fact-checked him and showed that he was wrong, he'd get mad and he'd double down. He said, "That's ridiculous. I already know it." And, and he'd go on the air the next night, make that same exact mistake.
11: Your commentary about uh, a loss of a citizen's army is especially germane to what's happening now with Syria. We, it's easier now to go to war is one of the points you make. And as now we think about Syria, how do those two come together?
12: Well, i back up uh, from Syria a little bit and I uh, think I'd wanna tell a story that begins really back at the end of the Vietnam War. Uh, a war that divided uh, the country, a war that in many respects shattered the United States military. And part of the response to that war uh, was that the American people decided to jettison the long-standing tradition of the citizen soldier. Richard Nixon endorsed that uh, when he ended the draft and declared the creation of an all-volunteer force. And for some considerable period of time. This seemed like uh, a smart move, a good thing for the country. Uh, Let citizens off to hook also gave us highly capable and well-trained and well-disciplined soldiers. What only became evident after the Cold War ended, however, uh, was that this new professional army really was no longer America's army. It was Washington's army. And Washington began to as do with in the army, as in Washington D.C. And Washington began to do with that army whatever they whatever they wanted, uh, regardless of whether the people uh, had signed up to the enterprise. Uh, and this uh, greater penchant for war, I think, really reached its uh, zenith after 9/11. Uh, with President George W. Bush's decision to invade Iraq, as so many people have said, a country totally uninvolved in 9-11. And this was the ultimate testing time for this great professional army of ours. And I'm sorry to say uh, it failed the test. We were supposed to win quickly, economically, easily. We didn't win. And instead, we ended up with a protracted war, uh, part of a series of post 9 11 wars, uh, where br- bringing us to where we are today, where Syria may well be uh, yet another one of these wars waged by Washington with its army uh, while the people are left sitting on the sidelines. And
11: making n- no real sacrifice, uh, I was at 1% of our citizens.
12: Yeah, it's interesting. You know, sort of the inverse of the complaint of the Occupy movement. You know, the Occupy movement said there's the one percent of the rich people who are screwing the ninety nine percent. In when it comes to basic military policy, we have the ninety-nine percent screw in the one percent, and it's the one percent who get sent off to fight these endless wars. So it's going to be easier then to
11: have another one and another one. We we haven't even it seems to me we haven't even looked at ourselves regarding the wars that we've had.
12: That's, uh, nobody, w- that's one of the most troubling uh, aspects of this whole thing. I, uh, it, it staggers me that the American people have uh, so quickly put the Iraq war in the rearview mirror. Indeed, won't even look in the rearview mirror.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or to relate your first hand experience from a political event you've attended to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So first of all, just a production note that this episode is being recorded a little bit early. Uh, by the time you hear it, I will have already ridden from New York City to uh, Princeton. Uh, the first night of Climate Ride, we actually spend the night at Princeton University, which is kind of cool. It's a relatively short day, only about 45 miles of riding that day. Uh, The next four days will be, uh, you know, getting from there all the way down to DC. And that's why uh, there won't be an episode coming up in three days as normal. It'll have to be another three days after that once I'm uh, back home and able to make a show. Uh, But today, I I wanted to give myself enough time to properly respond to Natasha from LA, who left a very uh, eloquent voicemail that was played on the previous episode. Uh, So today, I'm just going to, you know, play segments and respond to them as we go. It'll be a nice conversation, and hopefully, we can clear some things up. You know, at least understand where we're all coming from. Whether we agree at the end or not is another question. So uh, let's get started.
3: Hi, this is Natasha from LA, Um, I've been listening for over a year and during this time um, you've had a few podcasts about the legalization of drugs, but I haven't found any really good or compelling reasons to legalize drugs in all these podcasts and in fact listening to the most recent podcast on the topic and then the call from the most recent show maybe think that the reasons given here are far worse than the argument that the government should just let people do what they want.
0: So I'll just go ahead and jump in here and and lay some foundation for the discussion because a lot of what's going to be said is about making a distinction between fundamental and subsequent arguments and as as Natasha just pointed out, I think maybe the fundamental argument is, yeah, the government really just shouldn't be telling people whether or not they're allowed to use marijuana because it's been shown to be no more dangerous than alcohol. And so if we all essentially agree as a society that it doesn't make sense to try to outlaw alcohol, then it really doesn't make sense. Law marijuana. Uh, All other arguments essentially flow from there.
3: For starters, I'm against drug use in general. Um, I can understand people having fun every once in a while, but I've seen the devastation that drugs can cause. And because of that, it bewilders me that we'd consider making them more available. I am
0: also against drug use. Not only do I not use drugs myself, I, I don't even drink alcohol. So, you know, I, I don't have a personal stake in this whatsoever. And, and I've absolutely seen people ruin their lives with alcohol. But now we're talking about the best way to deal with it. And so there's, there doesn't need to be a disagreement on that front, you know, deciding that something needs to be done. We just need to figure out the best way to do it. I don't think, and I think the evidence shows, that outlawing it is not the best route to solving the problem for people. I would much rather turn people with addictions to either alcohol or drugs into patients rather than inmates.
3: Whether or not you agree with this, I think everyone can understand the concerns the government would have when it comes to having a society in which drugs are widespread. Which is why everyone agrees that there should be anti-drug education programs.
0: So this statement carries with it the assumption that the war on drugs is reducing the supply of drugs available to people who want to take those drugs. I don't think there's actually any evidence for that. I think the only effect really being had is the price of drugs is higher than it would normally be. But the availability seems to be there for anyone who wants to partake as it is.
3: So if we take it as a given that the war on drugs is bad because people get killed as a result of it, the solution isn't to stop the war on drugs, which will only solve solve one problem, but to stop the demand for drugs. If people wouldn't do drugs and would find a healthy way of dealing with what ails them psychologically as they would for what ails them physically, there would be no need for a war on drugs. Stopping the war on drugs because of problems in the supply chain isn't going to the source of the problem.
0: I can agree with everything in this statement in theory, but I don't think it's realistic. You can look back at history and you can see that people have been eating or smoking or licking anything they can get their hands on to alter their state of mind for millennia. It's just part of who we are. Drugs aren't just for people who are sad and depressed and need an escape. They're for perfectly happy well-adjusted people who want to have some extra fun. It's just part of who we are. Ask any four-year-old why they like to spin around in a circle. Makes them feel funny, makes the world spin around, and it's fun. That doesn't mean it's for everyone. Like I said, I don't do drugs, but to imagine that we could reduce the demand for drugs down to zero or anywhere close to zero is a completely fanciful notion. Now, on top of that, I think that the war on drugs, the way it is currently constructed, does more harm than good. So, you know, I, I used an analogy recently about uh, gun control legislation. I said the gun control legislation is like Advil when what you need is antibiotics. And so we need to deal with more structural societal problems. And this is what Natasha is referring to. However, the analogy for this I think is a little different. Now let's let's for the sake of argument, we'll say that drugs are entirely bad, just for the sake of argument. So if, if if doing drugs is entirely bad, like as if you're cutting your own arm, you just you can't can't help it, you want to do it for some reason, but it's bad, you're cutting your arm, you're opening these big wounds, well then the war on drugs as it stands is just coming in and sprinkling a little salt in those wounds. And so you can say, hey, it's not—the the war on drugs isn't the problem. What you need to do is stop cutting yourself. Okay, understood. Let's work on that. But in the meantime, let's not keep sprinkling that salt.
3: Similarly, the recent podcast looked at drugs from the angle of race. I understand very well that if you're black, you're more likely to get lost away for drug use or for other things. Um, even though the rates of drug usage are about the same within the white and black communities— What I don't get is the leap that was implied in your show that if we legalize drugs, this will eliminate the problem. Legalizing drugs won't stop racism within law enforcement. That's another issue entirely and one that needs to be solved, not by making all things for which black people might get arrested legal.
0: 100% agreement on the logic used in that statement. However, I don't think that's the logic that any uh, legalization advocates are using. This is another example of, of the difference between fundamental and subsequent arguments. The fact that people of color are arrested at higher rates for drug use is not a fundamental reason to legalize drugs, it's a subsequent reason. It, it, it's evidence of the damage the War on Drugs does to communities that are already oppressed in other ways. The fact that the drug war is implemented in racist ways and devastates communities of color needs to be put on the scale on the side of decriminalization not because it's the fundamental reason, but because it is one of the negative effects to society that needs to be judged as as part of the you know pro con chart on whether or not we keep the drugs illegal or change the law.
3: The parallel about the legalization of drugs and gun control from the call on the most recent from Jay's um, commentary on the most recent po- podcast proves my point even more. We don't want things around us that are dangerous for ourselves and for others, whether the danger is direct, as in to the user of drugs or to one who commit suicide, or indirect, indirect, as in those caught in crossfire or killed in car accidents with drug users. The difference between drugs and guns is that guns are immediately effective, whereas the cumulative effects of a life on drugs takes time to kill somebody, drawing out the grief of those around him or her. One proposed solution to the problem of guns in this country is to make mental health care more available. It's a good idea, especially when used as part of a plan and not the only solution. Why can't we take the same approach to drugs? Rather than allowing members of society to hide from their problems, and let's face it, the majority of Americans don't have problems like those mentioned that exist in Afghanistan, why don't we offer solutions that promote well-being? As Jay said at the end of the most recent podcast, we need to address the root of the problem, and in this case, it would be with a society that is set up to help people. Thanks, Jay. Keep up the good work.
0: So my final thoughts on this can be to agree with that sentiment entirely, that what we need is to set up society to help people. And I think that all of the evidence over the last 50 years has shown that the war on drugs hurts and criminalizes people at the exact moment when they may need Help the most, or when they're not doing anything bad at all. I mean, there's a couple kinds of drug users those who don't need help because they're perfectly under control and not hurting anyone, and those who actually do need help because maybe they have a, an addiction problem, in which case we should help those people rather than criminalize them. So I think that even if all other things were equal, the best route would be to decriminalize drugs and put all of the resources that we put into the drug war instead into anti-drug campaigns, you know, awareness campaigns, and addiction clinics and, and you know, actual resources people could use for free to get themselves off of drugs if they want to. However, not all other things are equal. Not only do I think that the drug war is going in the wrong direction in terms of helping people, as we all want to do, but it actually hurts lots of other people. At the same time, so there's the, you know, the way the drug war is implemented in a racist way, and so that hurts uh, communities of color, but then it also creates an artificially high cost for drugs, which stimulates criminal activity that spans, you know, all the way from, you know, the big drug cartels that are basically running Mexico all the way to the the localized gang violence that has to do with selling drugs You know, at the, you know, the so-called retail market, essentially. So the war on drugs hurts people. It hurts the actual individuals who use drugs rather than helping them. It hurts their families. It hurts communities. And then it empowers violent criminals, you know, like cartels and local drug gangs, essentially all because Nixon got it in his head that he didn't like marijuana and wanted to outlaw it, even though the commission that he set up to investigate it came back and said, That it's not a dangerous drug. So, again, what I think it comes back to is that the government has the burden of proof to make the argument for why it's legitimate to keep it illegal rather than having the burden of proof on people like me to prove that it should be legalized, even though I think the proof is completely on my side and self evident, anyways. Here's a quick bonus clip for you on the topic of the drug war. This is pulled from a Young Turks clip originally published by them on October 5th, 2010, and it was originally aired on Best of the Left on October 21st, 2010, if you want to go find it. And I will include a link to the full original video, as well as the article that they're discussing in today's episode's show notes.
2: Nixon appointed Governor Raymond Raymond Schaefer to... uh, do research on marijuana specifically marijuana and nixon wanted to see what the effects of marijuana were on people so uh... was the chair to this national committee that did research on marijuana and they found out that marijuana has very very little negative consequences especially compared to alcohol okay just to give you a few examples the, uh, s- the study found that there was no significant physical, biochemical, or mental abnormalities that could be attributed solely to marijuana use. Okay? Also, uh, no ver- verification is found on a-, a causal relationship between marijuana use and um, subsequent heroin use. They found a lot of things that, pr- that proved that marijuana use is not that big of a deal, right? And that we shouldn't criminalize it for personal use. So
4: let me guess what they did. They said, let's continue to criminalize.
2: No, this this is what Nixon did. This this is the part that enrages me. Nixon looked at that evidence, and he said, I don't like that. So, Mr. Schaefer, I would like you to alter the findings of your study to say that marijuana uh, has terrible consequences. I want you to lie about the results of the study that I commissioned you to do. Of course. You scum! You dirty scum! No, no, no. Let me. No, and you know why this is not okay. The reason why this is a huge problem: fifteen million people have been imprisoned for pot use. Okay. This has cost our country one trillion dollars in costs. No. One trillion dollars. No, no,
4: no. Listen. Okay, we're
2: we're in a fucking deficit and we're criminalizing people for personal marijuana use and it enrages me because it started with Nixon a guy who commissioned someone to do a study on marijuana use didn't like the results and used his personal uh personal feelings and personal opinions about marijuana to totally change the course of drug policy in the United States.
0: So that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining us on Facebook and Twitter. For details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day, except for when I go off on bike rides from New York to Washington, D.C., Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.
7: And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained. ¡Gracias